Welcome to the Edge of NFT podcast with your hosts, Jeff Kelly, Ethan Janney, and Josh Krieger. We aim to bring you not only the top 1% of what's going on with NFTs today, but what will stand the test of time. We explore the nuts and bolts and business side, but also the human element of how NFTs are changing the way we interact with the things we love. This podcast is for the futurists and dreamers, the disruptors and creators, the fans and connectors, and the makers and doers that are pumped about this ecosystem and driving where it goes next. Today's episode features guest Barnaby Anderson, founder of Block Alchemy and co-founder of the King of Quotes game and band royalty NFT. Barnaby has spent years developing blockchain and cryptocurrency solutions, acting as CEO of Block Alchemy, a blockchain e-commerce and digital design consulting firm. Barnaby has been involved in all aspects of web technologies since their conception in the early 1990s. He is a true pioneer in web development, e-commerce, branding, online marketing, and blockchain. Barnaby is a sought-after international speaker and has been invited to speak on cryptocurrencies at Harvard, Stanford, and the World Economic Forum, Davos, where he coordinated a blockchain digital asset conference. Barnaby, welcome. Hey, great introduction. Thanks, everybody. It's really good to be here. Yeah, great to see you, Barnaby. It's been a minute since you've been in LA. That was uh, good times hanging out. Where are you in the world these days? I'm still in North America. So I'm just kind of a bit of a stone's throw from you. Well, not exactly. I'm just down south. I happen to be in Mexico. So, you know, the last 18 months have not been typical for any of us in the world. And I've spent the last eight years being very fortunate traveling all over the world. I mean, obviously, maybe you can tell I have a bit of an accent. I'm from Australia. And I've uh, been fortunate to be living in Asia and Europe and North America, Canada, Mexico. And it just so happened when the music stopped, when they were like, hey, travel's not so easy anymore. I, I, I found myself in, in Mexico, which I've actually been frequenting a lot in the last years. And I feel blessed to be here. It's actually, it's a delightful, I'm in a really nice town in a really great setup. So it's, it's good. That's cool. And weren't you in another exotic location, Georgia, before that? Uh, actually, kind of like, yeah, I was in near, Nash, near Tennessee, but actually in Alabama, northern Alabama, on that border there. That's where I was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good memory. Well, we're so excited to talk to you today about the world of NFTs. You're always sort of on the front lines of whatever's new and exciting in the world of technology and blockchain. So it'll be great to get your perspective today. Awesome. Yeah. Looking forward to Let's do a deep dive and let's, you know, be techie and geeky and share all of our crazy thoughts on where this wonderful world of technology is going. So my first question is, when did you first come into contact with NFTs, the concept, you know, actually interacting with them? What's the initial history there? It was back in the, when they first actually happened with CryptoKitties. Now, I didn't actually get involved with buying any. I just remember I was running a token sale at the time. It was actually CryptoKitties was really annoying because we were trying to do the token sale, if anybody remembers, and Ethereum got smashed and it was clogged up. And we were like, what? And I, I'll be honest, I was like, what is this CryptoKitties? I can't believe that people are falling for <laughs> buying these little cats. So that was my first, and it just literally just came, I just saw it actually as, a, as something that was clogging up the network. And I was thinking, but it must be really interesting in some way that I'm not getting yet. And that was my first uh, exposure to it. And then when did you feel like you started to get it? Maybe two points. One, maybe where there was a turning point where you said, hey, maybe there's something to this and you, you actually had some faith in it. And then maybe another turning point where you were kind of all in. Yeah, well, I guess it was a gradual process. So that's like 20, all of 2018, 19, 20. So you could say over those three and a half years. So I, I was already, I mean, even back in 2017, I was full-time blockchain, cryptocurrencies, developing, running teams, all of that from 2016. So my, my e-commerce background goes back to, well, I got in IT in 93, e-commerce from 90, beginning of 95, just ex always exploring. And then blockchain, actually, I was started researching it in 2011. But again, I'm, sometimes I'm a bit of a slow learner, to be honest. I didn't really get it. And so from 2011 to 2016, I was looking at it from a techie point of view, not really fully getting the economics. So again, guess what happened to me with, with NFTs? There I am looking at it at the end of 2017, getting frustrated by what the impact is having on my current plans. <laughs> and, uh, and then kind of, you know, just being aware of it, you know, 2018, 19, uh, and, and 20. And then that time I was developing other projects. You mentioned the King of Quotes game. And so I have a business partner there. We actually met in 2018 at a 
at a conference in Las Vegas and I was speaking there. His name is Noble Dracon, an amazing guy in so many ways. Together, we came up with this uh, amazing idea of a game, King of Quotes, where you're getting the quotes from famous people. And that was a journey in itself as inventing that. And that was, you know, basically that, that was like a two-year development, getting all that together. And then, so then it was basically in 2020, seeing what was happening with the NFTs and, and Noble saying, hey, you know, we could do that here. And so he was also really deep across all of that. And so I guess I became like, oh, you're right. We, I started connecting the dots through that process of, of actually through the development, which I think I'm such a hands-on person. I've always been a technical developer. I have to actually get in and make something. And by making it, that's how I actually get across the tech and the value proposition. When you were coming up with this concept of the game, were NFTs always part of the technology stack that you had in mind? And how do you think NFTs enhance a traditional board game? Well, again, actually, no, it wasn't always on the cards. We always had the plan of the cryptocurrency was going to be key in the game. And we were looking at fungible tokens. So the game actually has got a fungible token built into it. But as I said, it took that two years of development of watching what was happening. And I guess, you know, really trying to think through what are the other innovations that we can bring to this board game that could involve blockchain and cryptocurrencies. And eventually it became apparent that, oh, yes, we could use a non-fungible element as well. And so it took time for us to actually figure that out and watching the space blowing up. And so the game in its evolution, the King of Quotes game, which is actually available now, and we've actually launched it as an, an NFT first before the actual board game. So we switched everything around. So but because it started off as purely a board game, because Noble also has a lot of experience. He runs a game development company. And so, but from the get-go, he runs an augmented reality development game company. So we happen to just love board games. It was always going to be a multi-pronged media style game where there was going to be a board game that we thought would be issued first. Then there was going to be a cryptocurrency that was embedded through it that you would access through augmented reality because the game is about famous characters around the world that you can connect with. And so that was kind of, that was the angle there was, but then through that process, when we realized, oh, there's cards, well, the cards, of course, that's how all these NFTs are working. There's some element that goes back to the baseball game. So there was always that artistic element that has the origins from many decades ago. And so it was through that that we realized how we could overlay that into it. And so last year, we started building that part out into it. Now, then it also so happens that, that Noble has a lot of experience with music royalties. So again, his experience in that industry led into the band royalty. So it's been an evolution like None of this stuff, to be honest, it didn't hit me like on day one. It took me really working it. <laughs> I think we've seen with so many people, right, that the NFTs, whether they've known about it for a long time or a short period of time, when thought of through the lens of, of a resource or a tool that you have available to you and then ask yourself, now, how do I apply this? Like, what can I do with this? That a lot of amazing things are coming from that, right? It's that perspective, that particular viewpoint, I think, that certain people have and I feel like creatives in general are well positioned to take advantage of new tools. It's like putting a, a random instrument in front of them and said, you know, make music from this. I think that with that, like we all work in different ways. So as I was saying, how I've come to realize how I work is actually through conversations with people. I need to really explore the idea with someone for whatever reason, sometimes, but not so often do I sit there and just read an article or two and just get it and I'm all away. I've discovered everything with me when it's really cutting edge stuff. It's through nutting it out with somebody or a few people even like really talking it through, like, hang on, how does this thing work? It seems to really require me to pull it apart. My brain elasticity, whatever, like it needs. So that's, so I value having people around me who are very smart, very creative, who can also look at things from multiple angles and we test out and try. And so I think that even though it occurs that NFTs are this, you know, brand new thing. And I guess they, they actually are, I mean, end of 2017, three and a half years, that's pretty new. But it's not like they came out last month or six months ago. No, they've actually been in development. And they would have been in development actually before then. So we're looking at a four-year probably sort of development cycle. And actually, when it really boils down to it, how long have people been wanting this? They've been wanting it for many decades. How long did people want to have a, a fully secured cryptocurrency, Bitcoin? They were trying to make that since the 80s. So that's at least... 30 years, they were trying to make Bitcoin. I'm talking about genius level cryptographers, unable to invent this for 30 years, taking somebody who's 
an anonymous freak or whatever, Satoshi Nakamoto, who's, who, who on earth is that? And uh, he was the one who connected all the dots thanks to things like BitTorrent, et cetera. Like, you know, it was this building upon this technology stack year after year. This takes time. And so just as much as people always wanted to have a fungible token that was unconfiscatable, what a breakthrough. They would have always wanted to have a non-fungible. But how could you do that with something which digital that could just be copied? The very fact that the primary utility of digital is that it can be copied. So how on earth are you going to make something a unique item digital? It's, it's just a breakthrough of phenomenal proportions. So when you think back to your life over at least the last decade as a digital nomad, are NFTs and digital collectibles a solution for minimalism? You don't need to bring a stack of records and posters and a bunch of board games with you when you go from Mexico to Bali, right? For sure. Like, I'll just quickly tell you a personal story. So, like, I had a, when I was living in Australia, I had a family. I was raising my daughter, et cetera. When you do that, you have a lot of stuff, you know. So, I had like a three story home, et cetera. And I went through a process of minimizing because I knew I wanted to live this life of traveling. And, but I had all my favorite things, you know, books and paintings and documents. And I just spent weeks at the end taking photos of each one. So, for me, I was not going to put everything in storage, there was nothing going in storage. Everything was going digital. I took all my final books and took them to a scanner and had them all cut apart and scanned. All the ones that I, I had the library that basically was on Kindle, et cetera. And I had those that were no longer available to be purchased. And so I turned them into digital. So I was very thorough in my life to an extremely rigorous degree upon what it was going to take for me to take my whole life and put it into a digital world, one that would enable me to be extremely adaptable and be able to move anywhere in the world, literally at the drop of a hat. And so I've, I did that for like eight years, just totally love that. And so I guess I became, that's why I didn't quite even click with that because it became second nature for me. I didn't even think about things anymore. I shifted my thinking around everything so much that if I liked it, I just take a photo of it. And guess what? I never even go back and look at them, to be honest. Uh, all that stuff that I thought was so precious to me, this is just me personally. And I, I, I'm grateful that I have all those photos, but what could I do with them now? I guess I could turn them into NFTs. This is an interesting factor, but I guess some, what would be the utility around that? Like some of these most precious things to us, they're more personal. However, that crosses into a bridge of if you have something that's personal that you recognize as, wow, this would actually have real utility to more people. So for example, I talked to a guy who had an amazing comic collection. He had Batman number one. Can you believe it? Bob Kane, Batman number one from like, what was that, 1934? So it, that's worth, I don't know, must be millions. I, 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 I'm not a, I love comics, but I don't remember the price on that one. So that's an example of someone who has a physical item in their collection who definitely could NFT it, but then you have to break it down. Like, okay, so what does that really mean? How are you gonna do that? So there's a whole creative angle around that process. But for me, like with my own, let's say a painting that I had or something, uh, if it wasn't from a famous artist or some other item, like a, a book, is everybody gonna care about that? It's really just for me. So I don't, I think it depends upon the item where the value of NFTs comes into it for someone's own collection of items that they have. Everybody's got a collection of stuff. And what, what could be turned into NFTs? That's really up to them to decide. But also this market is constantly shifting. Like, where are things going to go? Like, wow. And also, it, it primarily also depends upon who you are. Because let me tell you, like, you know. I thought you were going to tell us where things are going to go because we're trying to figure that out. <laughs> sure. But like, let's say if you have a favorite cap, you have a cap that you like and uh, you want to NFT it because it's the only cap you got that's red or whatever. Well, that's a very different cap from Jay-Z's red cap. You know what I mean? So basically it boils down to who are you? Who are you to NFT the items? Because if you're someone like Jay-Z or whoever who's super famous and they're NFTing their items, for sure, that's a good idea. If they wanted to, if they needed any extra <laughs> value or whatever. So there's a number of factors. It's what is the item, but who is it that's issuing it? And that's really the world of NFTs. It boils down to what is the item and who's the issuer? Because that's, that's the reputation of the issuing wallet, where it's coming from. That's actually what's giving it value. So let me ask you then, man, like with regard to King of Quotes, for example, let's use that as an example. Like explain to me how NFTs come into play for that game. Okay. So really, again, it's the reputation of the issuer. So we created our King of Quotes, KOQ is what it's short for, our digital wallet. So one of the cool things, and we're launching, we've launched that on Wax, which is actually one of the primary NFT uh, platforms. They're focused on NFTs. Uh, we're launching the band royalty that's on Ethereum because 
Ethereum is kind of where so much of the big action is, especially for big ticket items. But with King of Quotes, it was a very different sort of game, a very different sort of marketplace. And because it was a game, looking at the zero transaction fees was going to be key for us. And so that was, it was actually a technology decision based upon the, the game mechanic. Whereas let's say with band royalty, people, it's a bigger ticket item, the gas fees, it's not going to be so relevant. People aren't going to be trading them all the time, but over here on the key of quotes, wow. Okay. So with key of quotes, there'll be more transactions more frequently, no transaction fees is going to make a difference. And when we want to bring them into gameplay, so that's actually, so essentially we've only just launched it um, in the last couple of months and it was also just testing it to see. So we've pushed out on the wax protocol on the Atomic Hub, which is like kind of the open sea of WAX. Atomic Hub, it's a great platform built out by an amazing team headed up by, by Jonah, et cetera. Those, that, that's a really, if people aren't familiar with it, I highly recommend. There's a lot of cool stuff happening over there. And we, we did a, a small selection. And the other cool thing that the technological difference with WAX is that the wallets themselves are names. So we actually registered literally K-O-Q as the wallet. That's the wallet address, the issuing wallet. Now on Ethereum, let's say like what we're doing over with um, the band royalty, you don't have that option with Ethereum wallets. It's like a whole, you know, zero X, nine, five, six, all that sort of stuff. Okay, so that's, and one of the craziest things with the Ethereum ecosystem, obviously, is when people are launching projects, there are scammers out there that will jump on that. And because you can even have multiple tickets, the ticker on the Ethereum blockchain, you can have duplicates of that. So because you've got duplicates of that, when somebody launches a, you know, a really cool new project, the other scammers are jumping on and launching it as well. So this, it's a very, so that's why you always say in Ethereum, focus on the wallet address, the issuing wallet address as the source of reputation. Again, it always comes back to the reputation of who's the issuing. You need to check the validity of the wallet address with all those numbers and letters with Ethereum. But back over on WAX, it's like, oh, this is coming from KOQ. This is coming from King of Quotes. It's the only one. It makes it much simpler, that interaction. They were smart because it's a fork of EOS. So they, they, they had thought that one through. But again, normally you have to have it like as eight characters. So all of these things are like little hacks. How do you get a three character on an eight character wallet address? So it's like, there's a whole lot of things moving parts here. It requires a strategy of how to actually build out the NFT ecosystem around the game. So we're going to be issuing the board game, the physical game. And then as people participate and play with that, they're going to have value when actually um, using the NFTs. And so we're building out a really cool smart contract where now in King of Quotes, you've got these two teams, these two sides. It's power versus freedom. Interesting. Power versus freedom. And so it's about the characters and the famous figures like everything from Lenin, Stalin, JFK, Martin Luther King, Einstein, etc. We've decided, we've put them into the two teams, freedom and power. And they have quotes. And so the NFTs are going to function on, on one aspect of it. They're going to function where you play them off each other. So there's actually going to be a smart contract game where you duke it out with the characters, with the quotes as the NFTs. Have, have you found that people that don't have experience with blockchain and cryptocurrency have started playing the game? And what's been your insights from that audience as related to the macro potential of NFTs? So we actually focused on building out a community on Kino Quotes for over 18 months beforehand. And it was all built around the board game. So these were people who were excited about playing the board game and they were getting some tokens because we created a free mechanism, uh, a fund mechanism for them to share to get the fungible KOQ tokens that are on the Ethereum blockchain. So it, it actually became a hybrid model where at first, because we were learning as we were building it, we issued fungible tokens from the Ethereum blockchain, but eventually built out on the WAX ecosystem for the NFTs. Now, because of that process of the 18 months, the whole community, the hundreds and hundreds of people who were playing with us and participating, they learned, we trained them. So we were actually walking them through. These are non-crypto people coming from gaming backgrounds, having fun playing games. And that's one of the things I love about all of this. It's like picking industries, picking board games, picking music, like with band royalty, picking these industries that don't have hardly anybody's in crypto in the world, but people know about it and they want to get in. And so people playing games, they, they were like, oh, we want to get these tokens. So they were getting the tokens, but they didn't really know why. They didn't really care because they didn't even understand. They didn't even understand it. So they came on a journey with us and they really appreciate it because in that journey, guess what? Some of them started buying Bitcoin and Ethereum. Can you imagine like 18 months ago, they were doing that? Like what a helping hand. So as we actually help people engage with a board game or with music, 
it's turning them on to actually the functionality of how to buy some crypto. And as we released the wax tokens, they had to go and buy wax. Well, do you know how much harder it is to go and buy wax than it is buy Ethereum, for example? Ethereum is on every exchange. Bitcoin, Ethereum, on every exchange. I know we, we all know that. Wax, I think it's on three, literally. And, and so we had to make them jump through so many more hoops and in the Telegram channel. So basically it was about the Telegram channel, which is where a lot of crypto interactions happen, educating them. And then through that, giving them incentives. Again, the incentivized structure, register, you're going to get some tokens, play the game, record it while you're playing the game, post that on social. You're going to get extra NFTs if you do that. So started to combine the playing of the board game with the interactions in the Telegram, incentivizing them that if they play this, they're going to get some extra bonuses. And it was just, it was beautiful to see how they got more into the game, more, having more fun and sharing it. I want to switch the directions a little bit to the band Royalty. Fascinating project. I'm a musician, been playing piano for many, many years. And so this is really intriguing to me. So I noticed on the homepage here, artists, songs, and band Royalty Pools, Beyonce, Jay-Z, Justin Timberlake, Cher. Right. You know, how is this going to work? Well, let's say I have a Jay-Z track that I really like. What exactly is going to happen as like a, as a user of of band royalty? Great question. So as you'll see in the top menu, there's a link that's called, the first link is called music catalog. If you click the music catalog, this is actually a specific catalog that we've purchased over at band royalty. It has over 50 tracks, 50 songs on it from those artists that you just listed off plus additional artists as well. So what that means is that we have gone and purchased the rights, the royalty rights to those tracks. So that means that artist doesn't have them anymore. They don't have them. But it also means that if you play a Jay-Z, a Beyonce song, a Justin Timberlake song that is not on the list that we've purchased for band royalty, we're not earning on that. Well, so it's not so much you're, you're, you're allowed to play it at home. It's when these are played in, you know, for business purposes, like in a bar, on a TV show, in a uh, movie, etc. So that's when royalties are collected. So it's when you go somewhere and they're playing, you know, Justin Timberlake's mirrors which has had like billions of views just on youtube alone all of those views that's what's counting towards the royalty on that track we own that track now and we're sharing it so that's the breakthrough and then this is still relying on the traditional methods of tracking plays and things like that like the ascaps and the bmis and all of those systems that are already in place it's just that what's going on is you're now owning the royalty and you're sort of breaking it up. It kind of reminds me of the Beeple situation, right? The, the Beeple was purchased and then the purchaser of the Beeple said, let me break this down into smaller pieces and people can have a stake in those. Is that mm -hmm. how it's structured? We're doing things a little bit differently because what we're doing is the NFT themselves, the band royalty NFTs, they don't confer the automatic rights to our sharing of the royalties. We're gonna take 50% of the royalties and we're gonna share it with the NFT holders who are staking. It's like an entry pass. We're gonna create a staking environment, which is a common thing in DeFi, decentralized finance. And it's this mechanism where you're staking your tokens for some other reward. Well, the reward happens to be if you stake it for a time period, minimum three months, even up to a few years if you wanted to, you're going to participate in the royalties that we're sharing as we're getting them quarterly from BMI and ASCAP. So I have a question for both of you guys, right? How do you think this changes the relationship between fans and the music and musicians that they love? I mean, Ethan, what do you, what do you think? How would this shift your relationship with your fans? And, and I'm curious what Barnaby thinks as well. Well, I think there was something interesting about it, which I'm still wrapping my head around how it's actually, how the transaction happens. So literally I would, if I had a song and I had the royalties to it, I'm giving them to you entirely. That's kind of how you, how the purchase agreement has worked. Hang on, you're talking about you being the musician and you're- Let's say I'm Jay-Z <laughs> and I have this song, Picasso Baby. And I right now, maybe me and the company that helped me produce it or whatever agreements have been already made, we co-own the royalties to this particular song. And so therefore, I'm Jay-Z. I get a check in the mail every quarter or every twice a year or whatever it is. And it's 
several million dollars or however much I've decided as Jay-Z, you know what, I'm going to forego those quarterly checks and I'm going to sell the entire rights to Barnaby. Now he gets those quarterly checks from now on and I don't. That's kind of what's happened, right? Correct. Absolutely correct. There's a couple of really famous examples of this. One is Michael Jackson buying the whole Beatles royalty rights. Remember that one? The other one is David Bowie when he made the Bowie bond. And so he actually packaged up his music and sold it because he knew how much it was earning every year and he pre-sold it to everybody. So he collected the big check on that first day and everybody else they earned every year for X number of years. And he was quite smart because he did that in that tail end of his life. So he got to cash out big time. And then he even got it back again afterwards because they only had it for, I think it was five years or I don't think it was 10, but basically then that he got the return to him after that. And everybody was really happy because they actually got a great return on their Bowie bonds. So, so Ethan, you can lease out your music and buy that island that you are interested in that you were talking about on a previous show and at least put the down payment on it and not have to wait for those royalties to accrue over the next five years. Right. Got it. So then furthering this question that you asked, Josh, how does that change my relationship with my fans? Right. Which is, it's actually interesting now because it's like, in some sense, I don't necessarily have a vested interest in that song anymore, right? I've sold Picasso Baby and I've gotten my payout from it. And in fact, I don't necessarily get any sort of, uh, in, in, any sort of benefit except for maybe my reputation or something like that from promoting that particular song, unless I maybe buy them back. In five years, you do again, and it may be 10 times more valuable when you get it back. So maybe I missed that. So that's what's going on. I've actually just leased it to you and I'm getting it back. Or... Yes. Yeah, so in these ones, the, each song has actually got a different rights to it. There are actually lifetime rights. They obviously cost more. So you have a range. You can buy it for, you. you, know, you the royalties can sometimes be for five years, 10 years, or sometimes the master, the lifetime rights around that, depending upon the musician and to what extent they're wanting to cash out. Got it. Got it. But so there is, depending on the agreement, if it's not a lifetime sale, there's still a relationship with my fans that I want to build and maybe a reason to promote that song. And Exactly. In that example that Josh was just going through, what if the new owner did a great job of promoting that song, that Jay-Z song? They did a great job of marketing it everywhere. And so you can see that and you're like, oh, thank goodness, that's coming back to me. Like in five years time, I get it back. Then maybe you actually are okay with promoting it because you see it coming back and they're doing a good job of looking after it for you in that particular example. Right. And in some sense, even like you're saying, by selling it, I might be getting a better return on investment in terms of the marketing of it, that that, that song actually might become more popular because I don't own it for these next few years because somebody else does. And they're sort of very heavily focused on fan engagement and ownership by the fans and all of these things going on. Because you've got 10, you've got 1000 songs. They've only got like a couple of them. And they're very focused on marketing those ones. So it's helping you and you're like, so it actually helps everybody. Everybody's getting helped in the process. And there's also, if I'm, I'm not mistaken, right, different types of royalties, right? You alluded to it, I think, a little bit, right? You got mechanical royalties, you got streaming royalties, you got digital performance royalties, and several other categories, which makes it that much more fascinating, right? You can hang on to some, right, if you'd like to as an artist, while you sell another, it boosts the value of what you are holding on to, right? Absolutely. And there are also actually often multiple people involved in the production of a track of a song. And they often all get a slice of it, not just the headline musician. You can even have people in the studio who are getting a slice of that. And so you can have people who are part of the song and they have a portion of it and they could sell that because it's an asset that they have. And so that it's a very, it's actually much more complicated than any of us would have ever thought the listening to music. It's much more complicated. Yet, though, what's really one of the really cool things I have to highlight it is that, like, with the appropriate funding, anybody can actually go out and try to procure royalties from their favorite artists or their favorite, you know, music. Obviously, band royalty is one way to do that, but the foundation is your ability to have brought together these amazing royalties. Yeah, so I guess that's what we're really excited about here is we know that most people, for starters, they don't know anything about this. They didn't know. It seemed far away from them. And you actually have to have connections in the industry. So Noble, uh, Noble Jacon, who's my partner in the band royalty, he's, got, he's been building up connections for the last couple of decades. He lives in LA. 
He's deeply connected to all these um, musicians. I'm not even going to list all the people he was going to school with, et cetera. They're like, he's deep in this. And so he has built that up. And so he's got those connections. Now we know that most people, they don't have them. They don't know how to get started. And also they don't have the, the cash. This stuff's not cheap. This is really not cheap to get into this at all. So it's like sort of democratizing. We're bringing to the people this opportunity for a relatively low cost compared to the normal entry price. Because normally you're looking in the hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars to get into this stuff. So if you can get a smaller piece by stepping in, that's really going to bring it to a lot more people. And a key part of this beyond the earnings potential is really just that connection of the fan. It's like, oh, wow. I thought like I love Beyonce and I just have been listening to her for years in this example. So now I can actually feel that much closer as a fan because now I've actually got an NFT that's directly connected to her and some of her tracks are playing. A bit of that's coming to me. So I'm feeling, and I can go to parties and say, hey, look what I've got. I own a piece of Beyonce's music. Do you? I mean, we just, we know that people are going to love that. So if you look ahead and had a crystal ball two, three years from now, how does this fit into the future of music and what's possible after this? Great question. Well, we see ourselves at Band Royalty as being a spearhead in this whole industry. We're going to be really driving what's going on. We know that obviously there's so many innovative companies in the music space, but what's different with us is we actually want to take care of the musicians. And we can't say that for all the other innovators. In fact, it's kind of the reverse. Because of the incredible impact that streaming has had, there are some amazing headline acts that have actually had their tracks played, I kid you not, like 40 million times through the major streaming platforms. And they got $2,500 for that. $2,500 for 40 million plays of their music. That wasn't like that before. So the innovation in music, as we all know, has gone through basically music itself. Just look at the last 100 years. What innovation has happened in music? Like at the turn of last century, People were going and watching people play. That was mostly how music was happening. There was the beginnings of an innovation around the vinyl record, and, and, but that was not common, but it was beginning to happen. And so the production of music, that was the beginning of the recording process that was bringing music to people increasingly every decade through the 20th century worldwide. That was an incredible innovation from the vinyl, which was still the main mechanism up until the 60s. And then suddenly the cassettes came out again, another level of making it easier. So you had like, I don't know, 60 years of the vinyl. I'm not sure exactly the dates. Then you had the, the, the cassettes coming out. And then by the 80s, 20 years later, or thereabouts, you had the CDs coming out, further reducing the cost, further bringing it, making it easier for people, but always at the same time, changing the relationship of the musician to their record label. So in behind the scenes in the music business, they were still through all that process, getting a great paycheck. You know, just look at the, how the musicians were behaving and their amazing lifestyles all through the 20th century. Well, it came to an abrupt halt because then we have the amazing innovation of Steve Jobs with, 10, with a thousand songs in your pocket in 2001 with the iPod. So that whole innovation there, that really started to bring music in a, in a very different way to people with like one track at a time. So the musicians had to, that was the first time they took a, a kind of a hit. It was like, oh, I'm no longer selling an album and getting the whole thing. It's like a song at a time. So that, that changed that. But that, and then the biggest change, though, in the last 10 years is with the streaming. So suddenly musicians are having to be, they're just getting cents on what was once the dollars. And what we see here at Band Royalty is it's like, okay, how can we switch this around, especially now where the musicians can't even go and play? So they can't go and play and have the concerts that they used to be having. So there's so many changes happening in our society right now that's affecting artists. And so the artists who are already kind of doing it tough, how are they going to have a new connection with their fans that actually pays them and so we're seeing the innovation not around the delivery of the music but around the delivery of the royalty rights to the artist now we're not starting off with that we're starting off with purchasing major acts to get the attention of everybody like waving a big flag like hey look what we've got beyonce timberlake will i am etc so we've got them that's going to bring the spotlight but what we're really doing is we're building a new platform of innovation around when artists like, you know, Ethan, like people want to come to us and say, hey, can we launch on your platform? Can we do a different deal where we're having more ownership and connection over our music royalties, connecting with our fans in a totally different way that nobody's ever done before?
Right. And that was one of my questions, but I think you're getting to it. And that is for this, for the smaller artists or the ones that are not yet known or the up and coming artists that is going to be a piece of your platform, but it's part of the plan down the line. If you um, look on the website, we've got a roadmap that's going along through that. And basically it does show that like later in the year. So like, there's obviously so many things to do, only so many we can do at once. And we're seeing the idea around like a musician launch pad. We have marked down like in this six months that this is going to be happening. And we're already in discussions with musicians now who are really excited about this new delivery mechanism that they can have a, a new connection, not only with their fans, but with the royalties and the fan as well. Because if you think about it, this could actually be an innovation that brings to new musicians the whole idea. Like what if people who weren't even thinking about being a musician and they're like, oh, wow, I could do that. Because maybe some people were losing hope with all the streaming and just seeing people not really earning that much. How many musicians, I don't know the stats, how many might've even quit? It's possible they may well have without being able to do concerts in a COVID world. Well, I think it happens all the time. I think people play music, they have some great music and yeah, there's no way to sustainably continue to make it. So they just stop. So this could actually, imagine this then, imagine if this gives a, a new financial incentive for people who make great music to start making it again. Wow. Ethan? I'll be looking forward to buying my first Ethan Janney band royalty NFT soon. That's awesome. But in the meantime, I'm so pumped about some of these like classic songs that you guys have the rights to. It's sick. It's amazing. Very cool. How do folks uh, learn more about the projects that you're working on, Barnaby, and, and stay in touch with you? Well, I'm pretty easy to find. I'm the only person in the world with this name, <laughs> with this spelling, Barnaby Anderson, S-U-N at the end. They can look me up on, um, you know, LinkedIn, Twitter. So basically, I, I'm, I'm just there. And they can go to the Band Royalty website. They can go and check me out. They can look me up. They can reach out. Uh, I'm not that hard to actually find. And I would say if they want to do that, then please just, just reach out. It's just an exciting time. I think that it's, I, I'm really passionate about the projects that I'm working on. They can go and check out, you know, the King of Quotes game. They can check out, they, uh, I run a, a blockchain consultancy firm. That's, that's actually, it's like my incubator, my lab where I'm building stuff, block alchemy. But I'm really focused on the projects that we've actually just been talking about and seeing a way. So well, what is it that has me be passionate about the King of Quotes? It's actually education. It's an educational game. I, I love bringing the fun element, but it's not enough for me. It has to be fun and educational and transformative. So I see learning about history and politics as having a whole transformational effect on someone. I see people who have musical talent who maybe were losing some, uh, some inspiration around that and people and the general public learning about the music business. As people start to wake up and learn about how music operates as a business and how it can be reinvented, could we bring on new people who could be offering amazing uh, music to the world that would never have done that before? And we know that music changes lives. People's lives have been changed by music. So that's what really inspires me is, and so I'd be welcoming people to come and check out the platforms that I'm building and get involved. We've got, and also looking us up on Telegram, get into the conversation. We're, we're here chatting away yeah. I think we have like a, a special link for folks that want to sort of earn extra perks, don't we, for band royalty? Absolutely. We've set one up with you guys. Yeah. Yeah. we're gonna, People can go to edgeofnft.com slash band and they'll be able to link directly over to, to Barnaby's platform, band royalty, and potentially be able to earn some special perks uh, with that link. So make sure you grab that and, yeah. and get there. But we actually have a, a couple more segments we want to get through with you, Barnaby, as well. We've got edge quick hitters coming up here, and then we're going to talk a little bit about the news of the day. If you've got some more time, are you up for that? Sounds great. Let's do it. Awesome. Cool. So yeah, edge quick hitters, just a fun, quick way to get to know you a little better. There's 10 questions and we're looking for short you know, single word or a few word responses, but you know, feel free to expand if you get the urge. You ready? Yep, let's go. Okay. What is the first thing you ever purchased in your life? Okay, so this comes straight to my mind. I'm not sure if it is, but it was the one I was most psyched about. And I was uh, either five and a half or six, and it was the hand solo action figure. I was just, can you imagine? 1977, that's aging me, but I was super psyched. But I was devastated because I threw it away. I was so happy to get a little hand in my hands, but I threw away the box that had the gun in it. Oh, no. Oh, man, that's a great one. Uh, what is the first thing you ever sold in your life? Oh, geez, the first thing I... I started my entrepreneurial career. I, that was probably... I was 24 and I was doing web development. So I hadn't done any sales before then. And I was, I was selling websites. Literally, I was door knocking saying, do you want a website? What the hell is a website? Somebody would say, what is that? So I had to sit down and explain to them 
what a website was and they couldn't see any application for this. And I was, all, all I could see was the future. I was like, no, you don't understand. Like all bro brochures, all commerce, everything is going to be on this screen. They're like, who's got that? I like, I said, I know, but they will eventually. It was a hard job. What was the first website you sold? I'm so curious. <laughs> there was, man, it was a long time ago. Like, uh, but there was, there was a bunch. Like I, I was, there was like an, an island resort, which makes sense, doesn't it? There was an island resort. Oh my God, it was called, I think it was called Monkey Mia, which is, it's all coming back to me now. It's this blue background. And I was really excited when we could have like colored text and it wasn't just gray. There was a blue background I could make. And because they were looking for international business. I mean, how forward thinking were these people? I went to a, a Toyota car lot. I remember I went and you know, they called me in and I had to sell. I sat down with them and I was like trying to tell that this Toyota car lot, like, no, really, people are going to come and order your cars on this screen. And they were like, really? Like, you know, so that was, it was tough. Amazing. Wow. And aside, this is fascinating. I've, I've listened to a couple of interviews recently with William Quigley of Wax, who we mentioned earlier. He talks about, you know, early on the, the internet, you know, and all the people that they had to sell so hard on doing internet based projects, right? And right now it, it seems like a no brainer. And I think that's really, really good to keep track of, right? Uh, same type of people that we're getting into that now are, are getting into the NFT and, and cryptocurrency space. I was always seeing the potential. Like I got my first laptop back in like, I think it was 94 and I could see, oh, that's going to be my career. I'm going to invent a life where I can live on a beach and work from anywhere. This is like, there was no internet. There was nothing. There, I hadn't even heard of the web. That wasn't even there yet. So I, I was sort of seeing there was this potential for this but it was going to take, you know, it was going to take a lot to bring everybody on board. And it's been like that with blockchain. Like, you know, it's been 12 years now, 12 years that we've had the blockchain, uh, almost four that we've had NFTs. And so things actually are getting faster, but we're still looking at like the majority of the world, you know, it, they're still not, it's too hard for them. The user experience is lousy still. And the user experience, so if you think about it, it took um, at least 15 years of engagement of the internet from 95 to 2010. It, it, wasn't the, it wasn't the computers, it was the phones. It was the smartphone. It was the iPhone. The iPhone is what made the internet. Even though the internet had been going for 15, you know, thereabouts came out in 2007, but nobody, you know, in Australia, we couldn't get the iPhone until like a few years later, they didn't even release it there. So it was such a small group of people, but it was the user experience because for someone pulling it and putting it in their hand and pressing buttons without having to touch a keyboard, the keyboard was the impediment. It was blocking people's access. They had to just do these little squiggles and then they started to wake up to it. So there's always something that, but who could see that? Jobs could see that, but a few other people could see that. So it takes something that's such an, an out there concept, but when you see it, it's like, oh, of course. Why, why didn't anybody see that? Because it wasn't straightforward, but it's the user experience every time. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. So moving on then, what's the most recent thing you purchased? <laughs> oh man, I've been at home for so long now, just building stuff. Like I guess something exciting. Oh, oh anything. Okay, no, I, I'm just looking up. I have this nice little water fountain in my room. I just ordered that a few days ago. And so it gives me this nice little tinkle of music. Oh, not music, but of water trickling on, on some stones. So there we go. I love that sound. What is the most recent thing you sold? Oh wow! What have I? I oh, it would have been <laughs> would have been the band band royalty NFTs, <laughs> which has been so they're buying. People are buying. There's a pre-sale at the moment, so people can actually, even though the launch hasn't happened, it's happening on the fifth of May. People can come in right now, and we've got a pre-launch uh, because we don't know quite what's going to happen. If people want to secure them, because there's only three thousand, there's only three thousand of them, and we're doing. We've got this massive marketing campaign. We've hired the the biggest PR firm for crypto, basically in the world. They're pushing it out. So we've given people the opportunity if they want to jump in now. So that's the most recent thing I've been selling. Nice. Congrats. That's awesome. What is your most prized possession? Depends. Like, because I'd have to say probably my, for everything I do, be my computer, right? Because I have, a, I have an amazing laptop. That's actually my means of everything that I'm doing. That's kind of a little bit boring because everybody's got that. And I could just get another one if I had to. But I have this, this really cool stone here. This, this, now it doesn't look like much, but this is a, it's called Yemen Zoo. And uh, okay, so uh, I mean, I might as well just say it was, it was a Bitcoin. There you go. I bought that for a Bitcoin. How about that? Wow. Wow. So how's that for a prize position? I got that in 2017 though, when Bitcoin was significantly less, but you said you want these stories. I'm happy to tell you. So that Yemen Zoo, it is a crystal that absorbs light. It's the only crystalline structure that actually absorbs light. And the only people who had them 
were the emperors of China. The emperors of China had the Yangmen Zhu and Genghis Khan had a crown with nine of them on it. And you could imagine what they thought, what kind of power it gave them if they were the only people who had them. Because you go and even try to find anything about this, let alone find any resource that even has them in the ground. All those pieces, those original pieces, firstly, are not, they're, they're, they're not around. Like they're only, who's got those pieces? Well, maybe there are some pretty seriously wealthy people in China who know something about this stuff and maybe they've got them in their private collections. But there was this incredible scientist who somehow got a hold of one and he completely deconstructed its entire molecular makeup and built a ginormous facility for tens of millions of dollars and re-engineered the process of how to make the Yemen Zoo. And then he produced it at extraordinary cost, remaking this natural crystalline structure, but doing it in this lab environment. Is it messed up that I'm wondering if I want that or I want that Bitcoin that you gave up? I'm still trying to decide. <laughs> there you go. So I happened to meet the guy who was the access to all of that living. He was in Taiwan when and I, I was just deep in Asia and he explained, he wrote this whole book on it that's phenomenal, showing me how the history of this thing. And he said, dude, if you get this, maybe your life might change in radical ways. Well, there we go. So that was, I'm, I'm pretty, uh, pretty happy having that object. Mental note, we just need to stay on your good side, Barnaby. You're in uh, good company there. <laughs> Very cool. If you could buy anything in the world that's currently for sale, what would it be? Oh, wow. These are, what would I buy that's currently for sale? I don't know. Like, I guess like these days, are, everything is so strange. Like, you know, and I'm really missing travel. So when you say that to me, my mind is going straight to travel. And I really don't like restrictions. Uh, I guess that's kind of evident from how I live and what I'm doing and the kind of technologies I'm involved in. So I guess maybe having some just incredible boat that just can't be stopped by any means, like it's got like its own power generation source and it can go anywhere, that might be cool. As long as it doesn't get stuck in the Suez Canal, you're good to go. There you go. You just want that yacht that David Geffen tweeted in the beginning of the pandemic from saying his life was totally fine. Did you guys remember that? <laughs> I guess uh, I just wanna, these are great questions, but I, I, I've got to ask you, like, are these revealing quite a lot about me? These questions, they must be. <laughs> it's I think funny. so, man. This is great. Yeah, they always do. <laughs> yeah, they yeah. always do. We appreciate it, man. All right, so we'll switch gears a little bit, though. So if you could pass on one personality trait of yours to the next generation, what would it be? The first thing that comes to mind, I think the most important thing is confidence. Everything is confidence. The whole thing, the whole equation, it's confidence. Yeah. But confidence has to be authentic because people can see through it. They can see through if you're not really there. And if you're really there, then they'll move mountains for you and with you. So the access point then is like, how do I develop such a rock solid, authentic, unwavering confidence? Well, let me tell you, that ain't so easy. But, um, you know, that's what there is to do. That's how I see. So life itself this journey here is to grapple with that. It's the whole thing is a confidence game. It's like, what is my relationship? Because it brings up so many elements. It's like, what is my relationship with myself, with the world, this word doubt? Because doubt is the hindrance to confidence. But then if you're afraid of doubt, that's also bringing more doubt. So it's this terrible catch 22, whereas if you're trying to resist doubt, it's coming for you. So how are you gonna break through when doubt is there as your barrier to the world, to the winning of the, the game of, of confidence. So it's a complete paradox. So somebody has to wrestle with that. And so providing people uh, that insight alone, actually, like, you know, don't resist doubt. It's all paradoxical. You have to become so confident that you love doubt. Hmm. Man, it's a trip. Deep stuff, buddy. We appreciate it. Very cool. Uh, so the flip side of that, if you could eliminate one personality trait of yours from the next generation, what would it be? <laughs> um, that's so funny. I, I love the paradox of this. What do you, I'm sure you can guess what it is. It'd be doubt, wouldn't it? You see, isn't that funny? But that's my paradox. I love that. I love that about actually that that was what came to my mind was this interplay with, with those two things. It's, it's very interesting. Definitely. A little bit easier. What did you do just before joining us on the podcast? 
it's been a maxed out day so far. Like all these calls, talking with legal teams in, in Singapore, because we've got our operation based out of Singapore with band royalty, making sure that everything we're doing is squeaky clean, dissecting all of that, figuring out how to tweak and improve the offering so that where everything we're doing is completely compliant. That was what we were doing beforehand. Nice relaxing day. That's great. And lastly, what are you going to do next after the podcast? Well, I haven't had that much to eat. So probably that'll be first order. So I, I, I kind of, I like doing intermittent fasting. So I have my meal later in the day, but it's also been a very high energized day. And so I've, but I'll, I'll have something quite delicious. Mexico's got fantastic food. So it's very tasty here. So I'll have something. I can vouch for that. It sounds good to me. <laughs> I'm, I'm totally on board with you, Barnaby. I've been fasting by default for today. I've had so many things going on. I haven't had a chance to eat yet. <laughs> Well, that's Edge Quick Hitters. Really appreciate it. You guys up for some hot topics? Hot topics. All right. Yeah, let's hit it. So the first one on the list is a headline. How many layers of copyright infringement are in Emily Ratajkowski's new NFT? What do we know about this, guys? Yeah. She's doing an NFT. I think it's going to be through Christie's. And it's like a picture of her, right? And in the background, I believe there is a particular work of art. Right. So there, there are these questions around, well, if the artwork is in the picture that she's NFT and then that NFT itself is a, you know, it's a link to the picture. There's this debate over, over whether or not there's copyright infringement going on. Right. And so this is a question highlighted by this example, but I think when you look around, it's everywhere, right? If you can take somebody else's artwork, even if it is in the public space or something that you've purchased on your own, can you, you know, resell that? Is that yeah. copyright infringement? Yeah, I feel like NFTs are opening up a whole, it's going to be really interesting. I mean, with the burgeoning of the internet, that there became this whole question of, you know, sampling, right? Sampling rights and things like that as well in music. So I just take a few minutes of a song and I put it into a track. I owe now royalties to the originator of that track. My question then is, now that we have nfts is there like a more automated easy way to do that you know so that i can just choose from a library of nft you know pieces of music put it in my music and then automatically somebody gets rights for me using that i don't even have to create some type of agreement or anything like that yeah have you thought about that barnaby in terms of sampling rights specifically you know or is it just that's just another piece of the things that fall into the royalty topic I think it falls in there. It's a, it's a fascinating area to start exploring. It's a, it's a whole new innovation around people are always going to be wanting to use music in, in their own videos and films, et cetera, uh, or maybe just their own little clips, whatever they're making. And so to make it simpler for people, as you're saying, to build it in directly, because with smart contracts, you could just code it all in, that there's a way to actually get part of that streaming back instantly. So that provides, but certainly that's not happening yet, but that's a very innovative area to develop. All right, next on our list here, success story, Trevor Jones' NFT gamble pays off. What was Treasure, Trevor Jones' NFT gamble? Well, I guess he has been behind, I guess, many of the sales that we've heard a lot about, right? The expensive NFT sales, and I guess, supporting the, the, the artists, bringing that artwork forward and through these various auctions, I think, partnered with all the big platforms, Empty Gateway, Super Rare, Maker's Place. And I think the what they're talking about there is that he uh, he's basically bet the farm on it, right? He's gone super long NFTs and did so you know, long before NBA top shots came into the public consciousness, right? And so to to do that, to, to look at that now and say, oh yeah, that, that, that seems pretty cool. It seems like an obvious bet, right? But for it to evolve over the last few years, and I think he started really getting into it in 2018 and really make a move on that. Man, that it, is, it was a big risk. I think most people didn't want to talk about NFTs during that time. So I think this is the, uh, this is the crux of, of this story. Sounds like a guy you might want to have on your team if you're doing something cool in the space. Yeah, for sure. You know, it's just a general question that I think is really worth asking when you're on the edge of things like we try to be on edge of nft is like when is the timing right 
you know, because, you know, you don't want to be the artist necessarily that never made any money on their work during their lifetime, for example. And so it's definitely a question worth getting the right answer to put it that way. When you kind of have an intuition about what's coming next and knowing when to jump in, knowing when to hold off. And of course, there's that balance, like you don't really get to be an OG, even if you sort of thought about jumping in early, but you didn't, you held off. So well, on that point, like timing is really everything as well. So it comes back to like, because you can be too early and you make a mistake and that comes you know, to business or, or trading. If you get the NFT and you sell it too soon, maybe it's got a bigger upside, but then it's also the reverse. If you hold on to it for too long, if you hold on to things, if you don't get out, like have a timeline, they have a shelf life. There's a lot to that, to tuning in of when to enter something, whatever it is, and when to exit. I think there's a, there's a real art to that. And some people understand timing extremely well. And other people, kind of like maybe even most people, they don't really have that, that sixth sense around the timing. And so I think that's also where it comes in from building a team and, and having different types of analysis of what's going on. But again, that comes back to reputation because you have to know if you don't have the skills around that, who to trust and where to turn to. But what we're seeing, like let's say at the moment with this bull cycle, this bull market that we're going through, historically, even though it's only 12 years of historical data around Bitcoin, which is the, the spearhead of all blockchain innovation, uh, traditionally like 18 months after the, the four-year halvings, every, every four years, Bitcoin halves in its value uh, of what's being produced every 10 minutes uh, in the mining algorithm. So when that happens, when it halves, there's less supply of Bitcoin. What does that typically do? Well, in the 18 months after that event, Bitcoin has historically, every time, gone to all-time new highs. Well, what have we seen? We, that happened last May in 2020. We're in that 18 month period. And I can't remember the exact amount of what Bitcoin was back in May, but I think it was about $7,000 or something. So it's had a, what, an 8X or something like that, or 7X in the, um, in the last 10 months. And so what does that mean? It means we're partway through this. Is it always gonna be like that? Well, we've still got six months according even to that metric there. So we're in the, you know, if it was, and I'm not giving any financial advice here, I'm not a financial advisor, I don't read tea leaves, I don't know how the future is going to go. But basically, if 2021 was like 2017, which was the other bull market, and if it was May or April right now, April of 2017, just go look at the price of Ethereum and Bitcoin back in April of 2017 compared to December. Interesting. So... There are patterns here that people are following and they're tracking this and they've been tracking it for the whole time. And if you look at the trajectory of Bitcoin on its four-year macro cycle as where it keeps going, oh my goodness, where this price is possibly going to go and what that would mean for the whole industry and what that would mean for NFTs. Because some people are saying, I'm not saying this is the case, but some people are saying that NFTs now are like the ICOs of 2017. But what we're seeing is the whole industry has also matured so much more since then. And the NFT innovation has been around for almost four years. Whereas the ICO innovation had only just started in 2016. So ICOs were not even one year old. There was no tech behind them that was proving any validity of, of a real marketplace. And so what we've seen here, the whole infrastructure has been built out for NFTs in the last three years, providing a lot of stability for this real growth that we're seeing in the bull market right now when we're halfway through it. So timing, maybe this is the right time. And, and also to uh, diamond handed through at these fallow periods, right? I, I think that you take advantage of, of sort of when things are getting hot to really grow, but also make sure that you remain committed during the times that things are not so exciting to the general public. Well, I just kept on beavering away. I was so excited, just always working away at blockchain through the bear market 2018, 2019, 2020. Like I just am so clear that this whole decade is the reinvention of commerce as we know it. The whole future here, of the 2020s is the complete reinvention of the world's economy. I can't stress that enough. That's my take on it. Not saying that's the truth, just how I read the situation. That means all aspects. You see the internet, wherever the internet goes, it reinvents that entire area, the entire area of communication. So if you go back into the time and you were there in the mid nineties and you told everybody, guess what? All aspects of communication are gonna be completely reinvented from faxes to brochures, to, to movies, to mm. telephone calls, they wouldn't believe you. So that was because the internet intercepted communication. What did it turn to next? After, I mean, communication is so broad. It's everything that we've been living in. The internet was only really a communications device until blockchain, Bitcoin, and now it takes finance. Finance itself is in its crosshair 
of the internet. That means that finances reinvented from the very ground up, just as communication was. What does that mean for everybody? Because everybody deals with two primary things, communication and finance. That's what all the humans are doing all the time. They're all doing, they're talking and they're, and they're transacting. Well, if, if the whole first one of communication was reinvented and now transactions, all aspects of value proposition and valuing and transferring of, well, oh my goodness. I'm having a hard time imagining if you knocked on my door to sell me a website, how I could say no. <laughs> it's, it's, it's just for an island retreat at that. <laughs> it's interesting just, you know, some people look back at history and they see the, these different ages of development and that we often start to take the analogy and apply it to things like, let's say how the brain works, right? Like through the industrial age, the brain was a machine, you know, and through the age of Facebook, you know, the brain is a network, right? It'll be really interesting if we start to think of so many more things in terms of currencies now and exchanges. Be curious to see if that happens. One of the biggest things is, you know, the fact that the utterly incredible thing is that people can now literally create a currency. They can create a value out of nothing. In the past, this is how expensive this is. The only people who could do that before were governments and kings. Nobody else had that power. All of us now have that power. All of us have the same power as a king or a government. But not all of us have that stone. That's true. Next, uh, next headline here, you were mentioned it a little bit earlier, just talking about the future of commerce, uh, a new NFT project that combines DeFi and e-commerce emerges. This appears to be the NFT mall, a platform that's sort of meant to mimic a, a mall sort of situation, but someplace where you can purchase NFTs. Yeah, I guess the blending the, the ability to you know, purchase an NFT and then redeem it for something physical as well. So really finding that intersection of the, the physical and digital world feels like uh, it's something that a few people are working on and exploring, but not something that we've seen uh, come to fruition quite yet. It reminds me, though, of the conversation we have with Scott Page, who I think experienced formerly Pink Floyd as well. And he, one of the things that he's doing is enabling this entire platform where the NFTs exist, but people will also receive like all kinds of cool physical goods as part of their concert going experience. For example, they would get a box in advance of the physical box in advance of the, the concert that they could use for any number of things physically at the location. And similarly, while they're at the location, there'd be sections that are geofenced where you would, you would collect an NFT automatically with that app open on your phone as a reminder of your experience that you could then trade later or keep for nostalgia purposes, right? A whole lot of really interesting things forthcoming there that I think will be another gateway to uh, mass adoption. It reminds me also of this concept that many are predicting where we will, well, many, I don't know, a few of intelligent people maybe are predicting that, you know, the way that we trade things on eBay may actually convert to a system where you just store those things that you would have had shipped to your house at a central warehouse location and just trade the ownership rights to, for example, a pair of collector sneakers or something like that, or some type of trading card. Hey, why have it even delivered to my house if I know I'm just going to be trading it up to somebody else, you know, in a few months. So it's kind of the opposite of that. I think it gets really interesting when we talk about asset backed NFTs, which is sort of the topic we have here with Barnaby in, in terms of music royalties. But yeah, that this interesting interplay between real world assets and virtual assets and, and which one's backing which, it gets pretty, pretty exciting and, and goes beyond the sort of NFT concepts that we're seeing talked about in the news so often, which is more about like a digital collectible in itself. So things are getting spicy, guys. Indeed. Well, should we wrap? We should we wrap up this session here soon? I know uh, some of us have got to run, but look, I think it's been great. Right, lots of really cool topics of conversation. I just get more and more excited, Barnaby, uh, every time we hear you talk about your projects, King of Quotes, and, and especially just all the momentum behind uh, band royalty and what's forthcoming there. Huge supporter, love what you're doing, and I uh, can't wait to see where you take it here, especially in the immediate term. Mm. Thanks a lot, guys. I really appreciate it. And doing the love and it's just great to be here with you and to be sharing it with you because this is all, everything's in, in the inception.
we're, we're showing things that are just beginning. I'm thrilled about that. Thank you. Yeah, you'll have to come on our show in a few months and catch up with us with what's going on in your world. Maybe bring uh, one of your uh, artists along with you to get their perspective on what it's like to have a band royalty NFT. I, I also love the uh, the focus on what's happening in the future. It's really cool. Like, and I think we're all we're visionaries. We you know we're we're uh, thought leaders, and and so it's really fun to be discussing about that part about where this is all going because we're obviously technologists and we love technology and we've been in it for decades. And so we do have insights, and we're actually we're making the future. That's the coolest thing here for everybody listening is all of us are making it. And so whatever we're dreaming, whatever we're visioning, it can be done more now than ever before. That's the incredible thing. I, I always remember this little, somebody always told me if somebody has doubt and they're sort of wondering, can I really do this? Can I really like, you know, make it? This is a fun little trick to play when you think this through that right now, do you recognize that there's a 10 year old, there's a 10 year old right now who in 12 years time, in a dozen years time is going to be a, a multimillionaire in crypto and NFTs. Do you recognize that? Absolutely. There's definitely more than one 10 year old in the town that you're in or the city that you're in is that, yep, there's somebody in this city right now and they're 10 years old. Well, guess what? Do you know more than that 10 year old about crypto and NFTs right now? Does that mean that you have a 12 year head start on that person that you just told me is definitely going to make them make millions? There you go. So we're creating the future here and anybody can step up to that. That's the coolest thing. Yeah, it's very cool. All right, so we've reached the outer limit at the edge of NFTs today. So thanks for exploring with us. We've got space for more adventurers on this starship. So invite your friends and recruit some cool strangers that will make this journey all so much better. How? Go to iTunes right now, rate us and say something cool. Then go to edgeofnft.com to dive further down the rabbit hole.